I'm Holly Allen, and you're listening to the Passengers Prosecast. I'm Holly Allen, assistant prose editor at Passengers Journal, where our mission is to publish compelling art that is necessary rather than desired. You're listening to the Passengers Prosecast for Volume 4, Issue 1, where we discuss what makes the prose featured in our current issue so compelling and necessary. Today, I'm joined by the head prose editor at Passengers, Maxwell Suzuki. Say hello, Maxwell. Hello. All right. It's great. I'm so glad that you're finally joining me, head prose Mm -hmm. editor. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about the pieces for this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you, Holly, for letting me hop in. I I really enjoy the opportunity, too. Yeah, great. All right. So I'm very excited to get started. We have two fabulous pieces to talk about today. The first one being The Turtle by Noemi Boucher. Uh, Before we get started with our conversation, why don't we hear an excerpt of The Turtle now? The streak of sun hitting my thigh was starting to sting. The day was hot. I mean, witheringly hot. The kind of heat that makes you stop seeing straight. I dipped my fingers into the cool water and watched a stream of purple fuel float past. I'd always loved the smell of fuel. It reminded me of summers with my grandfather. The engine groaned and the boat twisted out of the dock. On either side of the channel were curtains of lush vegetation, behind which I could hear the howl of monkeys and the cries of other animals unknown to me. You could only get to Tortuguero by boat or small plane. I'd seen it in pictures countless times. I'd read every literature, every pamphlet, heard every story. Tortuguero was an outpost in the jungle with a couple of tin roof homes, some hotels, and a collection of international researchers. Okay, now that we have that excerpt for sort of reference, uh, let's get started. Uh, So Maxwell, what really drew you to this piece in particular? Yeah, so this piece was, I think, really striking to me because it had some imagery that pulled a lot from nature and introduced quite a few elements, elements that were new to me. So, for example, in the introduction, they talk about the sunset, and I thought that was really cool, hitting the ocean, and that was really striking to me. Other kind of examples were the way the forest was described, and I was really kind of enthralled by that. I agree. Reading through this piece, I had a similar experience. I found that a lot of the nature imagery was taking topics or images that I had seen before, but using them in sort of unusual ways, right? Mm -hmm. So comparing a turtle or the shell of a turtle to the moon, especially when we discuss rising from the water, right? That's sort of a comparison in imagery that I hadn't seen constructed before. So I felt similarly, I felt that the imagery was really striking and sort of created unique correlations, Mm -hmm. um, which was really, I think, lasting or gave the, um, created a lasting impression for me with this piece. Is there anything specific in regards to either the way that imagery was used or any of the way that that imagery sort of was employed throughout the story or how it sort of pushed things forward in terms of development of the story as a whole that you wanted to comment on? Yeah, yeah. So the the speaker, as I read it, um, they're kind of like a tourist entering this new area. And so they're viewing it as kind of we would view it 
as something new. And so those those new items are kind of shown in a different light. And that that's kind of why I, I really enjoyed it, because it, you know, kind of brings the reader along without doing too much. And that that's kind of why it lulled me into a um, a nice sense of of the story. Yeah, excellent. I definitely agree. Using imagery in this way, like you mentioned, to sort of show how the narrator's new in this environment, going to an entirely new place, an entirely new location to sort of look at this wilderness, look at this nature, experience something that the narrator's grandfather's experienced in the past, and sort of see whether or not that creates a similar effect for him. It's interesting in that it's new to him, it's new to the reader, and I do think, I agree with you, I do think the imagery really shows that off. In terms of the grandfather, since I did bring that up, that's a major element in this story that sort of pushes things forward and shows real drive and the desire of the protagonist. Did you uh, have any thoughts on that? Did you feel that it really pushed the story forward effectively, drew you in? Yeah, absolutely. Bringing up the grandfather really happens within the first couple paragraphs, um, and, and you see that continue on into the, the rest of the piece. And it's a, it's a pretty natural way of introducing the grandfather, kind of invoking a sense of connection with like the fuel on the water. I, I think that introduction to the grandfather really is very easy to, to walk into. Um, and then throughout, the, that relationship is able to kind of develop into a, a more complex uh, relationship where you see the, the speaker describe their grandfather's being a marine biologist and having a connection to the turtles. And in that way, the speaker wants to connect to their grandfather. It, it, you know, even though their grandfather isn't there anymore, they're still able to have that one kind of moment together. Yeah, I do feel that I agree. The grandfather is something that is brought up immediately and it creates something for the reader to really latch onto. It draws them in. I think that it's a unique sort of concept for a story to not have a character that sort of has their own passion, their own driving force, their own reason for pursuing this interest, for going on this uh, quest, if you will, for going to this new place. But actually, it's something that's traced back much further than that, where they're trying to really walk in the footsteps of someone else. And of course, ultimately, we see how well that services them mm -hmm. to try and find a similar passion or follow someone else's passion or path and how that ends up for them. Mm -hmm. Did you have any thoughts on the uh, journey as a whole? I did kind of use the term quest there for a moment. And there is the concept of travel is really brought up. Uh, like you said, we're in a new place. The reader sees things new uh, through the imagery, just as the narrator does. And the word, you know, travel, going places, those action verbs are used throughout the piece. The narrators even asked directly, did you come here to write or to travel, right? Mm -hmm. So we have that question, are you here for the purpose of the search, right? So did you have really any thoughts on this idea of either pursuit or travel um, or what you do once you get there? Yeah, I, th I think there are a few dimensions to that. So the first one is kind of following the the arc and the desire for the the connection with the grandfather. That itself is kind of like a travel metaphor, for example. And then the other thing that kind of I felt really 
strongly towards was when they're kind of sitting down, having a moment of pause and telling stories. And that invokes a lot of like travel with my experience. I've gone camping and we've just sat around the campfire and told stories. And so Mm -hmm. I think that really is evoking that sense of travel in those stories. And again, also paralleling and making the relationship between the grandfather a little bit more complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. The relationship between the grandfather and narrator is very complex, especially for a shorter piece, I guess you could say. You know, we're not talking about a full novel here or even Mm -hmm. a novella. And I find that often it's difficult to create those kind of complex or nuanced relationships in a shorter piece. So that was something that really stuck out to me as well. Mm -hmm. And this relationship and just the um, reflections on the grandfather come up again and again throughout the piece. And there's one section in particular in which the narrator is sort of reflecting on the image of his grandfather appearing so young, you know, wearing a sweater that he only traditionally wears at Christmas. So we have these reflections that take us back in time. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you had any kind of thoughts on these reflections that sort of seem to move throughout time. Of course, we're um, in this moment with this character through these travels. That's the contemporary moment. But I felt that time was used in an interesting way in this piece, often intertwined with mentions of the grandfather. So did you have any thoughts or comments? Did you feel that that was a strength of the piece? Yeah, I mean, I I think in in a lot of the moments uh, reflecting on the grandfather, it's pretty nostalgic. Like it's it's looking at and and viewing the grandfather in a light that is is a little bit rosy. And that, I think, makes it that much more complex when you kind of start to learn um, in those stories about the brother and and talking about the, how the brother was playing was playing instruments, but he was not that good. And that kind of parallels the that relationship between the grandfather and the speaker. Because I think it, it it's showing that even though the, the speaker really wants to be like their grandfather or wants to have that relationship with the grandfather, uh, sometimes that doesn't really turn out. Uh, they're not able to to become a marine biologist. That fake brother is not able to have a career in music. And so I think for me, that was really showing the positive sides, the nostalgia of the grandfather, but also showing that the speaker can't quite match the grandfather on that level. And and it kind of shows through that journey and searching for the turtle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting you mentioned this story about the brother in particular in those reflections, which kind of brings up a topic that interested me in the piece, which is the concept of experiences and experiences that are literally true or experiences that hold truth within them, whether or not they actually happened, right? Mm. Because there is this sort of flip-flop between lying and telling the truth, at least as far as we know. So I'm curious about your thoughts, if you have any particular thoughts about this idea of truth versus a lie, and whether Mm. or not this narrator can be trusted or, you know, what we're supposed to really take away from this narrator, if we're supposed to believe the narrator. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think... First off, the narrator kind of has this this very trusting voice opening up about their brother. You definitely are, are more akin to, to believing the narrator at that moment. But I think like 
there is a major change in their kind of demeanor and how, how it comes out as a lie. I personally think that it makes more sense um, for it to be both true and a lie. You know, it, it's the same experience, but just with different different activity, a different skill. Because the, the, the way I read it, it was they're trying to talk about their grandfather and they're trying to talk about being a marine biologist and, and failing at that. But they're doing it in a way that separates themselves from their experience. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of allows for them to contemplate it a little bit more uh, easily and, and, and allow for those hurt feelings and those desires to be a little bit separated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said, well said. Thank you so much for your thoughts on this piece. It is a fabulous piece and I highly recommend everyone go check it out. I found the ending to be very unexpected, but also very satisfying. So now I think we'll go ahead and shift gears and talk about our second piece, Built to Last by Leah Harris. Let's go ahead and listen to an excerpt of Built to Last now. I bought my first pair of Doc Martin boots in 1990 with money I saved up from babysitting the local Orthodox rabbi's children. Standing in the footwear section of The Black, a cluttered alternative shop in Ocean Beach, I was at first overwhelmed by the array of docks in all heights and colors. But as soon as I glimpsed them on the shelf, I knew I'd found my talismans. Eight hold, ox blood, steel toed, fuck yes. Their dried blood hue and their signature yellow stitching memorized my 15-year-old self. The bite of their new leather scent intoxicated me. I turned them around, marveling at their heft, admiring their every detail, down to the black and yellow airwear tag flapping from the back of each boot. When I strapped them on, their bouncing soles became twin life rafts for navigating the turbulent rapids of my adolescence. If the rabbi, his wife, or my Jewish family had known the truth of their origins, they would have never approved of me wearing boots designed by Klaus Martens, a Nazi doctor in the Wehrmacht, the German armed forces. When Martens began manufacturing his shoes in the 1950s, he fashioned the original bouncing soles from surplus Luftwaffe rubber. Most American Jews, including my own family, continued to boycott German products long after World War II was over. All right. So the last piece dealt a lot with wilderness and imagery. This piece also deals with imagery, but more the story of an object or a person's experience with this object. Before I sort of get ahead of myself, Maxwell, what were some of your initial thoughts on reading this piece? Yeah, uh, this piece has a very specific voice. It's pretty brash uh, points. And that, that comes through even in the first paragraph. And so that kind of paired with going into the history of the Nazis, into Doc Martens, and then also into that identity of of being Jewish, I think was kind of complex and kind of hard for me to kind of read and and face. Um, but what kind of drew me in was, or what, what kind of kept me reading was, I liked the voice. I, I thought the voice was very rebellious and and they allowed for that to to show through and so that they were able to kind of rebel against uh you know what what the nazis had had created and rebel against those kinds of norms 
that seems to be a major element of this piece is this idea of rebellion that I mm-hmm. think is quite appropriately symbolized by the shoes themselves. And the shoes are really a major player in this piece. It's not just really the speaker, you know, taking action, reflecting, but the history of the boots seems to be woven throughout the entire story, right? So we sort Mm -hmm. of get the back and forth with the rebellion, the reflections on life. And then, as you mentioned, the history of Doc Martens, right? So the Mm -hmm. history behind the name of the shoes, what happens to her specific pair of shoes. Do you have any thoughts or, you know, what do you think about this idea of like interweaving these two separate concepts, especially when one of them is the history of an object versus one example of that object, one specific pair of these shoes? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, they're very interlinked and not not just through like the the Nazi and, and Jewish and World War II aspect of it, but it's also kind of linked in how the boots are interpreted at first, um, at first kind of seen as this symbol of being different and having that also associated with kind of the neo-Nazis. And and I think for me, what what kind of shows through in that weaving of the the shoes and also the personal narrative is that both change. The the shoes, you know, towards the end have a much bigger meaning even though they're they're simply objects, they they take on a a very powerful way of of, of showing that even if you're sh- showing that you can take a symbol that's usually seen as negative and and make it your own. So I, I think yeah that that weaving was really helpful in in helping me understand the speaker and also how that speaker reflects on the shoes and the history of those shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I definitely agree. The addition of the history of the shoes themselves really creates nice um, counterplay and helps us understand the complexity of the speaker because really um, there is this sort of strain, right, between this concept of um, extremism, Nazism, hatred, etc. And then the speaker who has this complex identity Um, Not only this Jewish background, but also this idea of mental health concepts of madness. And I know that concepts from mad studies are used specifically in this piece. We have the specific word madness in use in reference to the speaker's mother. And we also have specific diagnoses or labels, uh, paranoid schizophrenia, etc. And we even have the word body mind, which really intrigued me because that specific label or word I almost exclusively have just seen used in academic texts or activist texts that are about mad studies or disability studies. So there's clearly this element also of madness when we're talking about Doc Martens, which are shoes that are typically associated with either fascism or sometimes punk communities or, Mm -hmm. you know, very specific niche groups. We also have this idea that people that wear Doc Martens are also sometimes seen as maybe they're on the edge, they're struggling with their mental health. It gives a certain impression of the person that wears them, right? But Mm -hmm. here we see this honest this honest relationship with mental health, with one's background, in which individuals who are deemed presumably non-mad or sane would see the boots as a weapon. 
And mm-hmm. then the speaker reflects on this saying, oh, they could be used as a weapon. I had never thought of that before. And instead, the individual is given uh, paper slippers. And then the piece says, no defense against anything, footwear for the mad, so that individuals who are deemed mad are not deserving of some type of self-defense because they are not allowed to have something that could be seen as defensive because it might be deemed by the same to be a weapon. So that idea that the object itself can be viewed or interpreted through different lenses, depending on the assumed sanity of the individual was particularly interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's only one instance, the body-mind instance of a word, a specific word being used in a certain way. I was wondering if you could comment more on the importance of specific labels, words, or word usage, if you had any specific thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's it really gives the the speaker and their their thoughts power. I think if you're able to use words in a very specific way, um, specifically like body mind, I think it gives a little bit more power and a little bit more reason for for the existence. So I mean, I think it was it was really interesting to to play with those kinds of phrases. In fact, even I think that also goes and they use body memory too. And I like how that interlinking between the body and something more ephemeral like the the self, the soul, are are kind of intertwined in 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 a word. Um, and I, I really like that. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Um, a lot of great word usage in this piece. Even the idea that the Doc Martens themselves, the name, that the umlaut would be removed from the mm-hmm. word Martin, right? Because not only do these words hold power um, and these labels hold power, but even a single letter or or the writing of a single word can change an impression so much, right? That that removing the umlaut from Doc Martens in their history somehow takes them from something that might be associated with uh, Nazism, fascism, Germanic languages, and then take it to something more English or working class was really interesting to me. And I'm going to be frank, I did not know that about Doc Martens before reading Mm -hmm. this piece. So uh, I felt that I learned something there. You did mention tone much earlier when I asked you about your initial thoughts or impressions when reading this piece. You talked about how the tone is a bit brash, I I believe was the word that you used. Yeah, yeah, what are your thoughts on tone? Like, how does that serve this piece? And what do you think that does overall? Yeah, I mean, I I think it it really embodies the kind of anger and and the, the way the speaker feels about themselves, about the society they're they're brought up in, and I think that really shines through and is, is quite different. Nothing that I have expected with with other pieces. So I think like initially it was it's very intense, but that's very intentional because they want to bring us into their experience, and and one way to do that is to have language that kind of cuts deep and and go straight to to the core of what they're trying to show. Yeah, yeah, very well said. Um, I think this was definitely a a strong piece. It actually packs a lot into only, you know, a few a few pages, you know, it's not too terribly Mm -hmm. long. I really highly recommend to our listeners that if you haven't read this piece in full yet that you do so, Um, I think you will not be disappointed. So thank you so much. These are both wonderful pieces. Um, I had a great time discussing them with you, Maxwell. 
I really yeah, enjoyed the interplay and the different topics, imagery, word, word choice, etc. Only two examples of all the wonderful pieces from this particular issue, by the way. But uh, before I give us our official, you know, sign off, Maxwell, I'm sure everyone is eager to hear more about you. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do or where listeners can find out more about you specifically? Yeah, sure. Um, so as you may know, I'm the editor for the prose department here at Passengers. I also have a fiction chapbook coming out later this year with Goldline Press. You can also find me at my website, uh, maxwellsuzuki.com. So those are kind of the things that I'm kind of doing and where you'll be able to find me. All right. Well, thank you so much, Maxwell, for joining me. I had a great time talking with you and hopefully I'll be able to do so again sometime. Yeah. Thank you, Holly. Thank you for joining us for the Prosecast. A special thank you to Buku Brew for the music you heard on the show today. Their work is available across music platforms. Please find the pieces featured here alongside many more in our current issue at PassengersJournal.com. Join us in the coming weeks for our Passengers Preview Cast, where members of our editorial staff will discuss what makes some of the work that is forthcoming in our next issue both necessary and compelling. And don't forget to read or listen to our next issue when it launches. Are you interested in contributing to the journal or joining our team? We're currently accepting applications for prose readers and voice talents. Please find our open calls on Submittable and our staff application on the staff page of our website. And don't forget to sign up for our email newsletter on our homepage and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest Passengers news.